This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to part two. <laughs> Stop laughing at me. Um, nope. See, now... Okay. Hello. Welcome back to In Sickness and our two-parter on hysteria. Last time we focused on physical health, and this time we are going to dive into mental health and wellness. We had a really good time exploring, you know, women's health, reproductive justice, inequalities throughout the ages in the last episode, and I won't be surprised if we get a little more of that today, but again, something that we both feel passionately about, and I'm sure that will come through. And I'm very excited to learn more. I mean, all I can promise you is another super complicated time. When is that not what we're going for? I mean, it's part of the joy, isn't it? Yeah, hit me. Hit me. Let's talk about the history of hysteria. History. Yay. Okay. So as Maya said, last time we talked about the history of hysteria as a physical disease. Uh, we talked about the wandering womb, the suffocated womb, and other common explanations, physical causes, and treatments of what Western societies of the past considered the disease of hysteria. So I will be using the words disease and illness interchangeably simply because that's how my sources use those words. So um, there are a lot of nuances to the modern use, but I don't think they're going to affect our discussion of the history in any meaningful way. So we're talking about it in the sense that historically it was considered a disease of the body slash mind, and it encompasses a whole range of physical, psychological, if we can even call it psychological before Freud, emotional and sexual symptoms and behaviors. And the use of a medical designation for these features is what we're here to discuss. So in the same way that our culture's nuanced use of illness versus disease as terminology will tell us something about our own culture. Their use in the past of medical categories can maybe tell us something about the past and how we got from then to now. So keeping that in mind, uh, let's get back to hysteria. So we mentioned it last time as an umbrella term for a number of different diseases, illnesses, and totally normal behaviors. <laughs> <laughs> for features of the female life cycle yes air quotes <laughs> yeah we're going to come back to the uh, air quotes for the normal and abnormal I will make my feelings known through tone <laughs> and dramatic pauses <laughs> so we left off with a bit of a teaser about the overlap in or the overlap between diseases of the mind and diseases of the body starting in the 18th century or even the 17th century really taking off in the 19th century so this episode, the two big themes that I saw in my discussion of hysteria was the mind-body interaction and coping with female sexuality. So it's kind of impossible to separate them out neatly because medical professionals, until the turn of the 20th century, and arguably Freud was the first one, did not make the distinction either between sexuality and mind-body stuff. But it might be helpful to call these out before I begin. From the early modern period, Hysteria starts to overlap with another disease called melancholy, which is an excess of black bile, leading to mental disturbance, and another disease called hypochondria, where the spleen gives off fumes and also causes mental what? disturbance, commonly thought of as the male equivalent of hysteria. Questions? Comments? Mostly just what? Yeah, I mean, um, to the black bile or to the fumes from the spleen? Just this whole idea of, like... But that's not what hypochondria is at all anymore. No, so the terminology has changed. That's just an interesting yeah. large shift, and that's the all. the important thing to remember is that these three categories, so melancholy, hypochondria, and uh, hysteria, there's so much overlap between them that basically like one doctor will diagnose hypochondria and the other one will diagnose hysteria, or they might diagnose both and with like a dash of melancholy on the mm. side. Like it's not at all clear that these diseases are distinct but they share a lot of common features and mostly the idea that your mind can be overstimulated and that that can cause a number of symptoms that can range from 
the physical to, I guess, what we would call like the mental or emotional, or just like being bedridden or fainting spells, that kind of thing. So yeah, the, diagno the diagnostic categories are fairly fluid, they're unstable, and the end diagnosis and treatment will be at the discretion of the medical practitioner. And what you find is that this diagnosis will be informed by the gender or sex of the patient. The main thing that sets the hysterical patient apart from the hypochondriac or the melancholic is that she's female. But she could also be melancholic, so. In the 17th century, you see quote-unquote abnormal behavior being attributed to a physical cause. So it could be the brain, the whole body, the uterus, black bile, the spleen, what have you. Um, and yet, when you look at something like melancholy as opposed to hysteria, you see that this kind of condition can be described as almost a possession, so like the intervention of angelic or demonic forces, or it can be caused by imagination or genius. I also think it's interesting how much of this stuff sort of entered just like our mm -hmm. normal lexicon, right? Like hysteria too, but you know, you can be hysterical, you can be a hypochondriac, you can be melancholy, but they started out as diseases. And I think we've talked about how like hysteria itself is gendered now, but I wonder to what extent those other quote yeah. unquote diseases were mm -hmm. also gendered. At I mean, the it's time. really interesting to think of the connotations of all of these words, which we still use quite frequently in, in a different way. And like melancholy is, I guess what we would describe today as depression, like it's their equivalent, but obviously it's not the same. When you say that someone is melancholy, that still has a romantic kind of connotation and you're far more likely to think of tuberculosis than you are to think of depression when you're talking about someone who's melancholy. So it's kind of romanticized. And like hypochondria, I mean, if let's, let's compare the uses of the word hypochondria versus hysterical. Hypochondria still has a very precise meaning. It means you think that you are sick even if you are not. Like that is quite precise. It's not gendered and it's something that can be taken quite seriously and used in fairly analytical contexts. Whereas hysterical or hysteria is a really neat way, as we talked about, of dismissing a number of complaints or really any sort of behavior that we don't like. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are deemed hypochondriacs even when they may or may not actually be ill. And I would, I mean, this is a wild assumption, but I suspect that's mm -hmm. probably gendered. Because if we've talked about, you know, people being told that they're imagining things, you might be accused of being a hypochondriac mm -hmm. when in fact you no, are. No, it's super anyway. interesting. And, and I would love to spend so much more time just like talking about the legacies of the word and how its usage has changed over time. Because I find that fascinating because like how we talk about these kinds of things those are cultural signifiers like this is that's kind of like the backbone of history how we talk about things matters what we haven't really talked about in terms of hysteria is that actually anatomical understandings were improving so throughout the 17th century even before you had cadavers being dissected all of a sudden in the 18th century you had all of these physicians um making a start on gynecology and, and really making a study of the female form. But that didn't mean that they were any better at diagnosing a lot of the conditions that they were lumping in to the category of hysteria. And within the context of hysteria, melancholy, hypochondria, your thoughts are literally making you sick. That has a lot of cultural connotations as well at the time, and it sort of becomes fashionable, uh, which we're gonna talk about later. So in the 18th century, many quote-unquote hysterical afflictions become known throughout Europe as the English spleen. And the English gained a reputation in continental Europe as prone to fits of melancholia and other nervous disorders. Is this because they spent all this time summering on the continent? I guess so. I was feeling nervous. <laughs> I had to go to Paris, darling. Go to take the waters, more so for tuberculosis than for um, nervous afflictions. Anyway, the English, in classic English style, turn this into a positive. I have a fun quote for you. It was England's unbridled success, the triumph of its economic and social arrangements, that made hysteria and associated nervous complaints so prominent a part of its medical landscape. And then quoting from a primary source text, I'm pretty sure it's from George Cheney, the, the English malady. Since our wealth has increased and our navigation has been extended, 
we have ransacked all parts of the globe to bring together its whole stock of materials for riot, luxury, and to provoke excess, sufficient to provoke and even gorge the most large and voluptuous appetite. So in 1733, George Cheney, who's a really famous Scottish physician, publishes uh, a text called The English Malady, or A Treatise on the Spleen and Vapors. And he attributes these nervous disorders to the climate and great success of England. He not only claimed that a third of the elite suffered from this, but he also claimed that only intelligent people could suffer from these nervous conditions. But they're fundamentally nervous, so otherwise referred to as something called sensibility. Without going down that rabbit hole, sensibility has become a signifier of class. It is the expression and experience of emotional tumult or mental anguish. In particular, women's nerves were frailer than their male counterparts and more susceptible to breakdown. And just like that, hysteria became fashionable. So I want to talk about George Cheney for a second because I just find him hilarious. He was a Scottish physician who built his practice by hanging out at coffee houses, which is like a new thing in the 18th century. Coffee houses are centers for intellectual discussion and the diffusion of print culture. It's where you get your news. It's where you network. It's strongly associated with the political discourse of the time. But that's a topic for another day. So he was hanging out in the coffee houses and eating and drinking uncontrollably, growing to about 450 pounds at his biggest weight. (laughs) What? It's not funny. I don't want to fat shame anyone. But, like, this is a doctor who's meant to be advising people on their diet and longevity. And he gets to 450 pounds, clearly cannot take his own advice, which is to practice moderation. He's actually quite puritanical in his recommendations to other people. Um, But the big thing he does for hysteria and melancholy and uh, hypochondria is he takes them seriously as illnesses. He tells people that they aren't imagining it. They are not the imaginary sick. They have something wrong with them. There is a physical cause for your mental distemper. So if you've been listening to some of our other episodes, you'll notice that this fashionability of disease has come up before. So TB in particular, consumption with its pale wasting away and its association with genius and creativity. So I just wanted to flag that. And then I wanted to talk about some treatments for hysteria, including this debate over the vibrators. (laughs) Okay, so in 1653, someone called Peter Van Forest advises uh, as a treatment for hysteria, basically manual stimulation of the clitoris and and vagina to orgasm. And he says, this kind of stimulation with the finger is recommended by Galen and Avicenna, among others, most especially for widows, those who live chaste lives, and female religious. As Ferrari de Gradi proposes, it is less often recommended for very young women, public women, or married women, for whom it is a better remedy to engage in intercourse with their spouses. So this is totally in line with what we talked about last time. While the clinical, I guess clinical, I guess I'm going to call it, production of orgasm was sometimes recommended, masturbation was not. So this is about managing a woman's sexuality as part of her health, but also as like an abnormal part of her that needs to be treated, preferably within the confines of marriage. But obviously they are acknowledging that some people either are not or cannot get married and therefore needs must. Enter the midwife. Your face. Good Lord. <laughs> Just like. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> so as we talked about before, medical practitioners normally prescribed marriage to women diagnosed with hysteria, and if possible, pregnancy, along with the sneezing, etc., to clear them excess (laughs) liquids, seed, whatever. So George Cheney would have prescribed a special diet, but especially temperance and abstinence from all of these indulgences like meat and drink and whatever. While this seems totally contradictory to the last recommendation I just cited from Peter Van Forest, actually it's not. It's all about lifestyle and preserving the status quo. Marriage, babies, moderation, Christianity. This takes us to the late 18th century, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, and it's like a hotly debated topic. But for a while, George Cheney seems to be the authority, and people agree with him, and they like this idea that that nervous afflictions are real diseases. But it's still obviously up for debate, and people are trying to figure out this boundary between body and mind, and they're trying to figure out, like, which one affects which, and to what extent, and how can we deal with this. So yeah, just highlights in the late 18th century, you've also got Anton Mesmer of Mesmerism, 
who begins treating conditions such as hysteria on the principles of animal magnetism, which I can only describe as a kind of energy healing. The idea is that the energy from the practitioner could be transferred into the patient through massage or other close contact, so sometimes using metal rods. But people start to see the practice as sexual and mesmer is no more. There's this podcast called The Dream. Season one is about pyramid schemes. Season two is about alternative slash complementary medicine. There's this really interesting one about essentially this. There was another guy whose name I've forgotten who basically was like, hold on to these metal rods and they'll give you a gentle electric shock and it'll cure everything that ails you. Everybody in all of Europe was like, this is it. And like hospitals were buying them up and everyone was obsessed with them. And then somebody finally thought to do a study on it and just like painted two wooden poles silver and then saw if people had the same results. And they were like, this is the best. It's working great. <laughs> yeah, it's like an early, early study of placebo effect, like just because it doesn't have yeah. any physiological function. Yeah. I just like there's so much material here. And obviously there's a sexual component. So it's the subject of a lot of controversy. And it's really difficult to get a grasp on this whole literature is what I've found. Like, I'm, I'm really hoping that I'm doing it justice. But if anybody has any thoughts or wants to discuss further, get us on Instagram, email us. We want to hear from you. Speaking of controversies, I wanted to talk about the myth of the vibrators. <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw that movie with Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, Hysteria. I don't think I have, actually. And Hugh Dancy, it's literally about like a Victorian physician who treats sexually frustrated women. Hugh Dancy gets really tired of his hand cramping up during these uh, during these like manual stimulation sessions and works with someone to create the vibrator. This myth of the Victorian vibrator comes from this one book called The Technology of Orgasm by Helen Maines, which came out in 1999. And she's been blasted since, but it took people about a decade I think maybe maybe even 20 years to start questioning her methodology and her evidence because I guess I don't know the story is titillating people wanted to believe that the Victorians were using vibrators in medical practice it's still so pervasive it is still so pervasive yes it's made it into popular culture and therefore it's here to stay but we are here to tell you that it's apparently not true so I will refer you to an article uh, from the Atlantic about the controversy it's really really good. So yeah, lots of debate about that, controversy around the prescription of manual massage and to what extent that was actually done, we don't really know, the mechanization of that, and we have the pictures of the scary vibrators on the Instagram. Uh, Sometimes apparently water jets were used. In the 19th century, and again we talked about this last time, there was an epidemic of hysteria. Uh, It was no longer just a disease of the elite as it had been in the 18th century. It's popping up in factories and shops. The elite signifier is gone, but the rest cure treatment is very class specific. So you would get treated differently depending on what institution you could afford. Silas Weir Mitchell was the originator of the rest cure. He's the most famous one to do this. And he believed that hysteria was caused by an overstimulation of the mind. I.e. women's poor brains cannot handle it. So he prescribed that a woman should be confined to bed, force fed massage, and in some cases, electroshocked. <laughs> what on earth? But only in some cases, Maya, so let's not freak out. Also, what's the it in this scenario? If women can't handle what? Just like the Thinking. pain of their existence? <laughs> they just can't handle all of the stimulation with all of these thoughts <laughs> and stuff. Okay. <clears throat> and then you've got Jean-Martin Charcot, who is a neurologist working out of the Salpetriere, which is a working-class hospital just outside of Paris. Uh, and this is in the 1880s. He studies hysteria. He photographs patients to try and figure out a more clinical definition of the symptoms and its stages. He's trying to find a better treatment. And this is where the images of the yawning, the hysterical yawning, come from. He's trying to figure out what's happening. He's trying to find patterns. Uh, and he's lecturing to medical students about hysteria as well. He believes that hysteria is a result of an injury to the nervous system, but it's still very much rooted in the idea that only women can get this. It is a gendered condition. None other than Sigmund Freud was a student of Chacot, and he began his work on hysterical women with partner Joseph Brewer, which I did not know. Their book, Studies on Hysteria, was published in 1895, and it prescribed talking 
to cure hysteria because for the first time they say that the physical manifestations of hysteria is not brought on by an illness but by past experiences i.e. trauma so specifically Freud believed that hysteria was a result of removing male sexuality from females that it they had us in the first half yeah that it came upon them when they realized they had been quote unquote castrated otherwise known as penis envy <laughs> ah. so it's super unflattering to women because obviously he's assuming that the right sexuality is male sexuality and that when the penis is stripped away it causes <laughs> a breakdown and a complete identity crisis Fred was such a dick yep he'd love that I wonder, okay, as you were saying that, it gave me this thought, like, I wonder, there's definitely a gendered difference in, like, seeking out, like, cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, that kind of stuff. And I wonder to what extent that has its roots in this, like, Freudian concept that, well, like, talk therapy was recommended for women who were being hysterical. Because mm-hmm. I don't really know much else about the history of talk therapy. No, me neither, sadly. And I, this is another thing where I really would like to just talk about Freud for <laughs> for an hour <laughs> for better or for worse but I feel like I feel like the point being that Sigmund Freud was using hysterical women to flesh out his ideas about the about the unconscious and this is something mm-hmm. that was later used for uh, for men coming back with shell shock the idea that like trauma can lead to physical symptoms he fleshed that out with hysterical women but that was very useful um, in his studies in the first world war did you see that thing about railroad whiplash no okay this was wild so that during that time period i think around world war one there were so many railroad accidents because people were starting to take them en masse but like it wasn't that safe of a technology yet so people were lots of people were dying in railroad crashes people were coming in either survivors or people who just like witnessed these like really traumatic events and coming in with the symptoms of whiplash, except they hadn't actually been in the crash. And it, it was PTSD and it was survivor's guilt, but it was like one of the first times, I think pre-World War One, where they're starting to recognize that there are these like mental mm-hmm. illnesses that could have these other impacts on like the way you lived your life. And it was when they started talking, it essentially became the same as shell shock and PTSD. Like they all became equated mm-hmm. with one another. And, and like arguably the effects of trauma are not necessarily super well understood or accepted. It kind of depends on the practitioner that you go to. So it's like an ongoing thing, but super important to remember that like Freud has a really long legacy within mental health studies. Mm -hmm. Uh, This whole idea of like impulse and controlling impulse, which kind of goes with his proposed cure for hysteria, which is again, that women get married and have sex. Like, that was <laughs> that was his cure, which... Wait, sorry, is that new? No, that's that's not new. So, yeah. Made a really big deal of, of rethinking hysteria as a purely mental condition and then was like, actually, you still need to get married and have sex. <laughs> so what I'm hearing from everyone is that they're very concerned about women not acting the way they're supposed to. And that's all I have to say, and I'm just really bummed. <laughs> Like, I've loved talking about this, but honestly, it's it's just really depressing. That's really depressing. Good thing we're talking about mental yeah, health. Yeah, please. Do you have any good news for me? Yeah, this one's going to continue to bum you out. <laughs> I mean, we'll either laugh or we'll cry, so let's stick with the laughing. We could do both and have a fit <laughs> of hysteria. Well, okay, I'm going to start by just taking us in like a sort of a wild pivot. I just wanted to take a quick second to talk about the fact that we are doing all of this from a Western perspective on hysteria. And the source of hysteria as a diagnosis definitely came from the early Western societies, like the Greeks. And that's not to say that in whatever form it <laughs> may or may not exist, It doesn't exist in places like Africa or Asia, but it was not delineated in the same way, right? Like it wasn't described as a diagnosis and laid out in the same way that it was in Western cultures. And it seems that that description influenced the way people experienced quote unquote hysteria or how it was diagnosed in them, obviously. Okay, so to clarify, you're saying that it's not that people in Africa and Asia did not suffer from what we would have called hysteria. It's that they would have expressed it and maybe experienced it in different ways because it is such a culturally constructed disease. Exactly. So like 
I mean, I think at the the end of the day, hysteria is not a real thing. Yeah. And I'll talk about that at the end. But like with many forms of various mental health diagnoses, the frameworks that we lay out really affect the way people both experience and diagnose mm -hmm. it, um, which I think makes a, a lot of I sense. So, to sort of just give like an example, in Mali, women were from a more traditional part of the country, typically more rural. They ascribed the outcomes that they were experiencing as the responsibility of evil spirits. In the West, they might have been diagnosed with a somatoform disorder, but they experienced it as um, the intervention of an evil spirit. Less traditional women in Mali ascribed the feelings that they were feeling as punishment for past mistakes. Right. But like, again, in the West, if they'd gone to a mental health professional, it would have been diagnosed completely differently. They didn't sit there and go, well, I have a somatoform disorder. Like I'm depressed because that wasn't the framework that they were provided with. Arguably these responses aren't all that different from how women who received the hysteria diagnosis were treated in history, but they were shaped by a different framework that was provided. And I just think that's a, it's a bigger conversation, but I think it's interesting. Anyway, to, to sum all that up, um, just to say that we're operating in a Western context and a lot of the literature we have to talk about this is in a Western context. Um, and the history of hysteria is also from a very Western context. But um, I think a much bigger conversation is how, you know, the frameworks that we lay out for diagnosis affect the way that patients experience their health. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. As we talked about in our last episode, hysteria was still diagnosable as a mental disorder in the DSM until its last reprint in 1980, which, by the way, is also true of homosexuality. So DSM, di Diagnostic... Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Gotcha. Because I'm going to use that acronym a lot. Let me just quickly go through what DSM is. Great. So... Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, first developed around the 1950s in the aftermath of World War II. There were some versions of this floating around beforehand, but basically the American Psychological Association was like, we need to have a common language that sets parameters for mental health. Um, you know, we're all doing sort of different things. Mm -hmm. Let's put it all together. Um, and again, I think that did have a lot to do with like PTSD and soldiers coming home and all these things that were sort of coming more and more to light in the aftermath of World War II. The real shift away from what we might call Freudian psychology, which is what you were just talking about, towards the more modern version that we have now, happened with the DSM-3, which was the edition published in the 1980s, which is when hysteria, homosexuality, things like that were removed. So yeah, there's decades between revisions. Now we are on DSM-5, and it seems that the intention is to publish small updates more frequently, which frankly makes way more sense to me, but whatever. But yes, overall, there are advantages. The books standardize diagnosis, they standardize treatment, they standardize language, and they help professionals make educated recommendations. On the other hand, it can be argued that oversimplifies mental health. It risks labeling and stigmatizing individuals. And most importantly for this episode, it can arguably enhance the chances of miss or overdiagnosis simply because people's behavior might differentiate from the norm as illustrated in the manual. This calls back to what you were just saying about like abnormal versus normal, giant air quotes, and to what we talked about last time about like where data and statistics on health come from, right? And how like the norm is male. I think it's not so much an argument against the DSM, but more an argument against like how it's used. For those who are curious, me, I looked up what the definition of hysteria was in the last manual that it was included in. And there are a few forms of hysteria. One is hysterical neurosis, which can be either conversion or dissociative type, or you can have a hysterical personality. So hysterical neurosis is characterized by an involuntary psychogenic loss or disorder of functions. Symptoms begin and end in emotionally charged situations and are symbolic of underlying conflicts. 
Often they can be modified by suggestion alone. And Angel's already laughing because she knows that we're going to have a lot to say about that definition. Okay, so someone who gets upset suffers from, okay, hysteria. And they're basically suggesting that it's like, it's fake, right? Because it can be modified by suggestion. So that has two types. Conversion type affects your senses and your nervous system. So symptoms like blindness, deafness, paralysis. The patient shows an inappropriate lack of concern about those symptoms, but they might actually be getting secondary gains because they are being provided by sympathy or a relieving of unpleasant responsibilities. (laughs) (laughs) So if I have a shit fit because I don't want to do the dishes... You're probably being hysterical as oh, long wonderful. as, as long as you are unconcerned by with whatever the symptoms are that you're experiencing. Okay. And it's different from malingering because you're not doing it intentionally. Okay. How you might determine that. Anyway, then the other type of hysterical personality is dissociative and that's things like amnesia, fugue state, multiple personalities. Then you can also have a hysterical personality, which is also called histrionic personality behavior. And histrionic is definitely another word that fits under that umbrella that you were talking about earlier. Like, well, you're having histrionics, you're being a hypochondriac, like that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, fetch me my smelling salts, that kind of thing. Exactly. And it is, it's that basically, right? It's characterized by excitability, emotional instability, overreactivity and self-dramatization, which is always attention-seeking and often seductive, whether or not the patient is aware of its purpose. These patients are also immature, self-centered, often vain, and dependent on others. This must be differentiated from neurosis. And are they always women? So it says it's more common. It doesn't say it has to be. But this is obviously coming from this huge background of history that we've talked about, about it being applied in a gendered fashion. And it, I mean, there's just so much wrong with this definition to me. One thing being, name me a person that has never, ever overreacted or been dramatic about a situation. Yeah. <laughs> like, And also like asking a doctor to make a value judgment about why a person was upset and whether or not that's valid. So... The name hysterical personality disorder and the um, hysterical neurosis were both removed in the 1980 edition. However, histrionic personality disorder is still in the DSM. And it just has basically the same description. Most of the literature says that it's more common in women than in men. Obviously, I take a lot of issue with that. For one thing, it's more commonly diagnosed in women, which is not the same thing. Um, And there are also still a lot of questions about this order and its validity slash existence overall. Mm -hmm. In fact, it just nearly didn't make the cut to even be printed in the most recent version of the DSM. But like, so most my question is histrionic personality. What does that even mean? This is just like, it's essentially the same definition that I just read, right? Like that's it. Exactly. Right. Your question is valid. And I don't know that there's an accurate answer for it. And most of the critiques against it were exactly what you would think slash were about to say, which is that it's a sexist diagnostic construct. Its description essentially mimics female gender stereotypes. It's still deeply associated with Freud, who used it to diagnose psychosomatic issues. And to further drive this point home, women are four times more likely to be diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder than men. One article I read called it a cultural disorder, not a personality disorder, which I really liked. And I think it mimics what you said earlier, right? Like this is a cultural diagnosis. It's a symptom of culture, not mental health. Mm -hmm. So that's great. So the conversion type of hysterical neurosis is also still in the DSM, but it's called a conversion disorder or a functional neurological disorder. But again, the description is almost exactly the same. A conversion disorder is thought to occur primarily in societies with strict social systems that prevent individuals from directly expressing feelings and emotions towards others. It's suggesting that some of these mental health responses are one way of communicating previously inaccessible feelings, especially for those who are oppressed or underprivileged. So, you know, women. (laughs) (laughs) And like, women were treated with hysteria for being expressive slash arguably now they still are with just like under this different name, right? Some studies show that the more emotional expression is normalized, the rarer conversion disorders become. Mm -hmm. 
like obviously that could be like a causality versus correlation, yeah. but like this idea that like if you're more capable of being able and allowed and accepted for expressing your feelings, the less likely you are to be diagnosed as mentally ill has <laughs> some like really problematic yeah. associations. And like I know this is a mental health episode and not the physical episode, but this seems to have really really huge ramifications for diagnosing pain. Because there's an yeah. overlap there, right? Like how are you how are you meant to communicate your distress in a way that validates the amount of pain you're feeling, but that won't cause you to be dismissed as like histrionic or hysterical? Yeah. And I'm sure I'll say this like 45 more times. Like I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist and there's so much intricacy here, but I think, you know, it's mental illness is an experience that's being had, right? You can't, it's not, a neurological problem, right? Like your brain doesn't show a symptom. So there's brain chemicals, there's things, right? It's an experience that you're having. And that's the same thing with like chronic pain, right? If you can't get someone to believe the experience that you're having, then like, mm -hmm. what's your recourse? Yeah. We had the whole, that whole conversation about authenticity last time, right? And that's, yes, oh, exactly. Man. The inherent thing about mental illness is that makes people less likely to take you seriously. So like, and that's a cultural thing. Yeah, this is maybe a cultural disease. Yeah, I mean, we could just talk about those definitions alone for the next hour, right? <laughs> like, that's, there's so much just in those, like, five sentences. But to sum it up, a lot of old and somewhat misguided definitions of hysteria are actually still in the DSM, just under a different name, which I think it's very easy to argue that that doesn't remove the inherent sex and gender bias in the diagnosis. Obviously, I'm not trying to say that these disorders just don't exist, although it is worth mentioning that their definitions say sources are unexplained. <laughs> but I am saying that changing the name of the way you're defining this disease is not going to erase hundreds of years of biased diagnostic technique. And it's going to leave some people with really harmful false diagnoses and other people missing an accurate diagnosis because they don't meet the guidelines of a stereotype. Boom. Nah. Yeah. Just and I think this really leads us. <laughs> Thank you. I think this really leads us to my core point, which I'm sure no one will be surprised about, which is that diagnoses based on giant air quotes, atypical behavior, <laughs> which can include anything from gender stereotypes to sexual preferences, largely target basically anyone that isn't a cis white male in a very drastic and unfair way. <laughs> So everything that I say from this point on is basically just going to be a branch of that sentence. <laughs> Have at it. Okay. So I'm just going to try and stick to my um, little framework that I set up last time, which is I just want to quickly talk about what mental health issues hysteria was likely used to represent in history. And I see it as a three-way divide. Um, one is physical issues that they couldn't figure out. One is a real mental health issue and one was just being a smart and independent woman. So <laughs> let me go in reverse order. What might have once been diagnosed as hysteria in the current day could much more likely be that the woman was a lesbian or otherwise not heterosexual or cis-oriented, not wanting to have children, not particularly liking your husband, maybe even just being good at math or at writing books. Worth noting that I believe it was Jane Austen who it was suggested was hysterical because she kept popping them out. Anyway, <laughs> uh, basically, let's get rid of the ladies that don't fit our idea of what ladies are, which is what Angel basically said in the first half of this show. In terms of real mental health issues, there's like a huge laundry list of things that all got lumped into the hysteria bubble. And they almost certainly included schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, other traumas and abuses, eating disorders, but particularly anorexia. I will not go on, but I think everyone gets the idea. Um, hysteria remained gendered, obviously, but at again, as you said, at a certain point, men were included in this definition. PTSD, which was at some point called latent homosexuality and other feminizing diseases got shoved under this umbrella too, which I think you touched on it last time, but I think it's really interesting, this idea that like they still gendered it while making it include men, right? It's so like you could be a man who suffered from hysteria, but only mm -hmm. if the disease you were suffering from was like feminizing. Yeah, no, it's like it's a very specifically female or feminine disease 
that is used to tell men that they are abnormal for their gender. You're like, oh, you didn't love having bombs dropped all around you? You girl. Exactly. It's really interesting to hear, because like, I didn't realize that PTSD was also called latent homosexuality, and it's so interesting to keep encountering these terms, these like medical diagnoses that we still use, but they mean something totally different. Yeah. How does and that I happen? Think that's deeply problematic. Deeply problematic. <sighs> Language is power, people. Yeah. And my third point, last week we discussed physical issues that were overlooked, and I'm going to mention epilepsy here one more time as a shining example of something that was egregiously overlooked and diagnosed repeatedly by Freud himself as anxiety attacks. Another thing worth noting is that many physical disorders, especially those suffered by women, have psychiatric symptoms, which might lead to a mental health diagnosis without actually addressing the underlying issue. So, for example, hyperthyroidism has a really common side effect of depression and anxiety. It's like you might get diagnosed with depression and anxiety, but no one would ever check out the fact that you have hyperthyroids, which is not what hyperthyroidism is. Other times, there are disorders that are seen as culturally unavailable, which is something that I touched on earlier, that basically race and culture can strongly influence the ability of some people to get diagnosed accurately because there is this medical assumption that something is less common amongst individuals with that characteristic. I would say that the fault for this isn't entirely with the provider. Sometimes relationships with doctors and mental health professionals do affect the way you talk about your symptoms. And so like everything might not be shared in a way that's required to make an accurate diagnosis. So I would call that back to our like syphilis episode where, you know, we talk about like mistrust of the health system and like, if you feel mistrust, then you might not share mm -hmm. everything. And that might actually mean that you struggle more to be diagnosed there might accurately. Be stigma as well. Just yeah. a huge thing with For anything sure. to do with mental health. For women specifically, there's also this idea that we are sensitive, which has a lot to do with the roots of hysteria. As you talked about, you know, this like 1800s, 1900s sensitivity, sensibilities. A couple of <laughs> super fun examples. So... In 1965, which keep in mind, hysteria was still a valid diagnosis at that point in time, a doctor followed up with 85 patients who'd been diagnosed with hysteria at the National Hospital in London throughout the past decade, including some he had diagnosed himself. More than 60% of them had an organic neurological disease, including brain tumors or epilepsy, and a dozen of them had already died. Womp womp. More recent studies suggested that as many as 30 to 50% of women who were diagnosed with depression were misdiagnosed. Furthermore, depression and anxiety were symptoms of other diseases, which went unrecognized. And I think the biggest problem in this is that once misdiagnosed or even diagnosed period with a mental illness, women face a way higher risk that their symptoms will just be dismissed. And that takes a toll on women as well, right? Like we talked about last time. If you're being told it's in your head all the time, it's you're going to feel like you're nuts and you're imagining it. And especially when your doctor is a person in authority, it's a person you're meant to trust. And if they are telling mm -hmm. you that there's nothing wrong, like who's to say they're not right? I mean, we trust these people because they're meant to know better. Yeah. So I'm going to zone in on women's health again and talk about some of the issues that women currently face for mental health services. This is also going to be a real bummer. <laughs> okay, so let's take an area where women are diagnosed really frequently. Depression. So, yeah, okay, so when a man and a woman come in presenting with the same symptoms that could be diagnosed as the same disease, women are twice as likely to be told that it's depression. And this is really tricky. On the one hand, it's likely that there are many women who are getting an accurate diagnosis, but on the other hand, there are all these women who have been diagnosed with depression without a lot of underlying factors being addressed. For example, cases of domestic abuse, PTSD, socioeconomic disadvantage, workplace assault, all higher amongst women. And diagnosing them with depression doesn't really do much to fix the underlying issue, right? Like at that point, depression might be a symptom of a larger problem. At the same time, you have men who might be depressed who are not being diagnosed because of a stereotype and they're just like suffering through it. Let's take an example. Alcohol abuse is more than twice as common amongst men 
than it is in women. It's really plausible that alcohol abuse is not an inherently male characteristic in the same way that depression is not an inherently female characteristic, especially given the fact that other mental health diagnoses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are just about evenly distributed between men and women. I'm not a psychiatrist. There's so much to explore here, but I think the point is we don't live in a vacuum. We have to take these gender roles, these cultural gender roles into account and how they affect people's coping mechanisms and what they are taught to do, how they're taught to act, and also how they diagnose them. Is it possible that there's a lot more alcohol abuse amongst men because they're being underdiagnosed for other issues? Is it possible that there's more depression amongst women because they're being overdiagnosed for things and like having root causes not be addressed, right? Like there's just so much. Yeah. That's tied up in that. Obviously, people get depressed. You won't yeah. catch me arguing against but that. But it's a mistake to look at it in a vacuum. Exactly. And I'm just going to talk sort of overall about mental health care in the modern day and all these barriers there are to appropriate care sort of in that vein. Um, and I sort of thought it might be interesting to frame it in terms of like different, um, I guess, like minority communities. So, for example, if you are a non-hetero or cis or gay, lesbian, trans, non-binary, gender minority of any kind, the likelihood that mental health amongst those populations is going to be worse is like so much higher than the population at large. There are higher rates of depression, suicide, and PTSD amongst those populations. A recent study showed that within the LGBTQ community, 61% of individuals have depression, 45% have PTSD, and 36% have a general anxiety disorder, which is like overall basically 10 times higher than the general population. There are higher rates of domestic abuse and other unsafe living environments. There are a lot of reasons why these communities might have higher rates of mental health issues that do go untreated. So internalized homophobia, externalized homophobia, social isolation, discrimination, family rejection. <sighs> Basically, overall, being a gender minority can have this huge impact on your mental health. To be clear, sexuality has no impact on your mental health, but the way society and individuals respond to sexuality and the things we're taught to believe about it do. And there's just so much discrimination to unpack there. But we can start with the idea that there has been homophobia as a structural part of psychiatric care for a long time. And being non-gender conforming was essentially described as a mental health issue or hysteria. To have this removed from a diagnostic manual doesn't really remove the risk of homophobia when you seek treatment, right? And many individuals fear being mistreated or dismissed, which is a barrier to accessing care. Whether this is this difference in treatment is as pervasive as people feel like it's going to be is definitely a question that's being researched. It does seem like there is less discrimination in actual care delivery than there used to be, but the impression that they will be treated differently is still a really major deterrent. And sometimes, you know, the reality of how they've been treated in the past is also a deterrent, especially for people in the transgender community. Another minority group um, that has, you know, issues accessing quality mental health services is, is just basically any group that's not white, right? So what we might call a racial or ethnic minority group, Black, Asian, Pacific Islander here in North America, have a real unmet need for mental health services. And that has a lot of different roots. In part, there's a cultural component, um, the deep-seated distrust of medical professionals, which is what you mentioned earlier, like we talked about it in our syphilis episode. There's also an aspect of rejection of mental health as an issue or a stigma or self-stigma against people getting treatment in some cultural traditions. Studies on this are often conflicted. So I do think it's worth mentioning that this idea of cultural bias against mental health services could also run the risk of being potentially racist in and of itself. And there's this issue that like low-income communities are also predominantly made up of racial minorities, which presents a lot of access and information issues while at the same time emphasizing a lot of the stresses that do feed into poor mental health. So yeah, and it's worth noting that like obviously racism itself, prejudice, stereotypes, you know, economic barriers all contribute to mental health issues themselves as well as being a barrier to care. And I wanted to call out mental health issues faced by indigenous populations separately within this. There are some really similar things to be mentioned as with other racial minorities, but social, political, mental marginalization, especially in the post-colonial context in North America, has a real detrimental effect on public health and mental health, especially. 
And we're not going to go too deep into that. The availability of accessible and appropriate resources for indigenous populations is severely lacking. There's also a really interesting history here that I'm sure Angel knows far more about than I do of something called the disordered native, which is the idea sort of like in the world that indigenous communities are unable or unwilling to deal with their own issues rather than acknowledging the deep-seated origins of all the things that are contributing to their poor mental health. And I think that goes back to the idea of othering people. Angel's going to explode <laughs> if I don't stop talking. Just a note that uh, the disordered native, you could argue, is an idea that has been around since Europeans first arrived in Canada, at least in the Canadian context. Oh, like, sure. keeping in mind that first real sustained relations between... <laughs> between settler and um, Native American communities were between Catholic missionaries and Native American communities. So like literally arriving and going in to sort out their lives and save their souls. So that's where that comes from. That's, I'm going to, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but just in like the terms of mental health, right? This idea that like, I mean, it, we still hear it today, right? There all these really racist assumptions about indigenous populations being like drunks or addicts or like mm -hmm. suffering from mental health issues. Paternalistic. It's paternalistic attitudes towards indigenous yes, and peoples. this idea of like you can't sort yourself out rather than acknowledging that any higher percentage rate of any of those things in any population has its roots in you know, hundreds of years of history and also mm -hmm. you're being racist. So please stop. Yeah. Oh, I, I finally listened to Thunder Bay. It was a great look at systemic racism and just like the systematic dispossession of indigenous communities and the dismissal of people, of people in authority and of the federal government yes. of all of these issues as quote unquote native issues. Yes. I mean, we should just recommend this right here. Like if you are interested in how indigenous rights are being systematically oppressed in Canada. Thunder Bay is a great podcast to start listening on how it affects people's daily lives in ways that a lot of people think went away in like 1890, but didn't. Mm -hmm. I would no. also highly recommend an article that we will link to that talks about colonialism as a social determinant of health, which I think is such a great way of contextualizing. That's so interesting. Yeah. Anyway, to tie these subcategories together, I think it's worth mentioning that basically othering people based on their skin color or their sexuality or their gender is a real issue. And we are still living in a world where people are discriminated against based on how they appear. When people are othered, their mental health issues aren't recognized, often based on their appearance and the biases of mental health practitioners. And that's a huge problem. And there's a whole different conversation to be had on like self-reported well-being and mental health versus assumptions of mental illness amongst non-indigenous communities. And like, I think that's also a component of potential racism in research. So what I mean by that is like a lot of studies show that like indigenous peoples might be reporting actually quite good mental health and studies will be basically like, well, but they're wrong. Mm. Like we know better. Yeah. We will tell them how they feel. Yes. But then, of course, there's also arguments we made about like rates of alcohol and drug abuse, suicide rates, and other representations of mental illness that are influenced by societal factors and environment. I'm not a psychologist. I can only wildly speculate, so I won't. <laughs> but I do think there are a lot of complex ideas to explore there. A nature versus nurture argument, right? Like how does the environment that we live in affect our mental health versus like our brain chemicals and a combination of those things? Mm -hmm. I'm going wildly and in also like different direction. And also like what have what have you been led to what have you been raised to expect from your life? Like what do you see as happiness as well? Yeah. That's a great point to sort of sum up this whole thought. You know, there are barriers that white cis men and women also face in accessing care, internal and external. They also face mistreatment and misdiagnosis, stigma no one's immune from this. There are people that are just suffering from it more than others. But, you know, let's just finish off with one more mention of actual hysteria and mental health. <laughs> <laughs> yep, bring it back. <laughs> okay, this is my concluding thought. As I said before, the idea of hysteria formalized and institutionalized this idea that to emote or to be different or to have what are typically identified as feminine characteristics makes you more vulnerable to mental illness. 
And we've discussed it here and in the other episode, what some diseases are that might have been misdiagnosed as hysteria. And I just think I would like to end on the note that like hysteria is not real. Like this concept that we're talking about here isn't real. There are a lot of physical and mental health issues that can and should be both diagnosed and treated properly. But the idea of hysteria created and continues to perpetuate and influence the way that healthcare providers, communities, and individuals perceive their own actions and their own health and not in a good way. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> I don't know. I, I was kind of struck while you were talking by how deeply ingrained this idea of hysteria and the way that it's perceived to be experienced by various groups and how that's made its way into our vocab, really. Like, I, I think that we all have that deeply ingrained prejudice in a lot of ways where we will not take people's mental health seriously and we don't automatically think that someone coming to us with their problems is authentic and like that's potentially a normal and understandable response given the legacies of what we've been talking about and it's a really mm -hmm. long legacy like this has a long history oh my god and yeah. a very big impact on everyone's everyday lives but I think we need to remember to like have these conversations to think about why we're reacting this way and to just try to do better. Like this isn't to say that we're perfect all the time and we're super woke and we're doing a great job with mental health and hysteria, but like we all of us need to keep doing the work on ourselves to make our lives as prejudice free as humanly possible. <laughs> oh my God, my first slow clap. Thank you so much. <laughs> but I think it's so valid. It's so ingrained. And I think we need to just take a step mm -hmm. back have thoughts about our thoughts because we're all we're li it's it's we can't be objective literally nothing is no. objective anymore i mean even the language that we use right it's the master's tools shall never dismantle the master's house <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes me want to cut that out of the old <laughs> vocab i mean but it's similar there's a lot of other things right like the r word was you know when i was still in middle elementary school people I mean people do still use it no one really in my cohort but oh my god yes um, it took me a second <laughs> I was like <laughs> instead of calling someone stupid right. but like are the same arguments are made for the word idiot or like crazy no I remember a lot of problematic words being used when I was in high school and like we didn't necessarily know what they meant like we would just no. use them so often that they lost all meaning except the meaning we wanted them to have in that context. And that's still not okay. Like we need to be thoughtful about how we speak. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to be called out on it. But like, I think we can train ourselves to criticize people more kindly and to be better at taking that criticism. Yeah. I love that movement going around be like normalize changing your mind and being okay with it. Yeah, change your mind and tell me I'm wrong because, like, I, I would rather know. So please get in touch if we're wrong about everything. I'm pretty sure I got Just the whole Freud thing wrong. Yeah, tell us what we're wrong about. We know it's there. Do you have any positive notes? Do you want to go first? <laughs> well, I've been feeling a bit poorly for the last few weeks. Not COVID. Don't worry. And... Yeah, I've, my body has finally gotten back to normal and I'm feeling more functional. And, you know, I was able to, like, get outside, go for a long bike ride, do yoga, and, like, feel comfortable doing it. And it felt really wonderful. It's I think it's easy to forget how much of a toll it can take if you just, like, stay inside and don't do anything, even if there's a very valid reason for that. Um, and just, like, being able to get out and, like, do stuff was just, like, very heartwarming and positive for me. Tell me your hooray. Okay, so my hooray is our joint horoscope for today. <laughs> Please read yours. Okay. Maya and I are on the same astrology app called CoStar. <laughs> Please don't judge us. Do not unfollow. You put in all of your information, and then it gives you updates every day. And then if you open it up, it has a whole thing where like you've connected with friends and it will tell you who to hang out with and who to avoid. Today, it told me, find emotional resilience with Maya Stevens-Yeninsky. Hey. And then it has a little blurb. It says, you can't see your fear. Spend time with Maya. 
their water mercury gives them the courage to witness the gravity of your neurosis. <laughs> it's just all so relevant. It's just so savage. I mean, are they wrong? No. Do I need to hear how severe my neuroses are? Also, no. <laughs> and to add to that, my to-do list was podcasts and psychology, and my don't list included focus. So again, I think we've really <laughs> nailed it for today. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> Good work, team. Oh, I also have, I have another hooray. My pleasure reading rut is no more. I Hooray. finished the P.D. James, but so I finished good. it in like three days because I was trying to have a life. So, yeah, not bad. I think I'm, I'm ready to start reading again, which is great. I think that's a great hurry. Thank you. I have a great plan for closing out, which is to say, okay. we haven't reminded you in a while that you should be washing your hands and not touching your face and wearing a mask. So I'm going to take this opportunity to say we still think that that's a good idea. <laughs> for once... You said that and I wasn't touching my face. How long does it take? Almost six months. <laughs> did we get there? <laughs> yes, we did. <sighs> okay. Oh, man. Love you. Goodbye. Love you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. <laughs>